Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga A to Fuga Z. And joining me today to discuss Sweet and Low from the 1993 album In on the Killtaker is Jason Shures, who hosts the Scream Therapy podcast about punk rock and mental health, and Flex Your Head, which is about classic punk albums. He's also writing a book called Scream Therapy, A Punk Rock Journey to Mental Health. Jason, welcome. Thanks for joining me. How you doing? I'm doing good, Ian. Thanks for having me today. I've been listening to your podcast a little bit. It's pretty fascinating. I'm sure that I have listeners who've like, because they have spoken to me about it, I have some listeners who I think would be really interested in that intersection between punk rock and mental health. Do you want to sort of give an elevator pitch for what's up with your podcast and what you talk about there? Sure, yeah. I had a very personal experience with it in 2018 when I was not sent, but I went to the hospital um, with a mental health crisis and got out and didn't really know what to do with myself. You know, obviously, lifelong punk and uh, never really was familiar with a lot of mental health stuff. So I thought, well, if I interview folks in the punk scene who are dealing with mental health conditions or issues, that could be a really good way to learn. Um, and it was that slow burn of learning over the last couple of years about people's different diagnoses, different uh, opinions and, and perspectives on mental health. And it's been a it's been a wild ride, a lot of work and uh, a lot of emotional taxing emotions through the whole thing, but uh, met some great people. And I think the podcast, uh, like you said, is, is really fascinating in some ways, if, if that's a topic that you're interested in. Is there anything that you find coming up again and again through the episodes of your podcast? Are there some common threads that your guests are often bringing up? Totally. Yeah. One of the biggest things, just to make it very blunt, is that I always felt like punk rock saved me in, in the sense of uh, you know, metaphorically, my life was uh, very confusing when I was young. I found that punk scene. And so I came in with this idea that punk rock saves lives. Um, just thinking, oh, the, here we go. Let's see if this flies or not. Um, and it was amazing how many people actually said, without being prompted, punk rock saved my life. It's a very memorable uh, Minutemen line, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so obviously some people use it metaphorically and a lot use it you know, literally too. Yeah. Um, talking about their favorite songs, you know, stopping them from self-harm or, or, you know, worse. And yeah, so that was the really interesting common thread that I found. And of course, that, that encapsulates all kinds of things in regard to community and, you know, um, finding yourself and isolation, alienation when you're a youth, uh, finding your people, all these kinds of common threads come up. And I think that's what a lot of punk bands, uh, you know, kind of champion is the idea that, you know, we're not alone and we've got people who are on our side and, you know, we have a, a safe place to go, you know, relatively safe. I mean, punk rock is not always safe, but um, as far as I'm concerned, the scene that I came from and belong to is, is, a, is a refuge. That's very meaningful to me. I mean, I, I guess I am, uh, you know, sort of, what would you say, neurotypical, um, no major mental health uh, crises have arisen, at least in my adult life. But as a teenager, I was definitely sort of depressed. And maybe it's part of it's just par for the course of being a teenager and going through that experience. But I, I vividly remember being in, you know, suicidal moods. And I that that resonates with me. Music was very important to me. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, you know, and and walking through that door of your first punk show and thinking to yourself, wow, this is, these are people like me and, and maybe I'm not such a freak, you know? And I think now we've cha we've taken those um, terms like freaks and weirdos, at least I have on as a, as a badge of honor. And, you know, I think youth, especially when they're looking for that thing. And again, a common thread in the podcast is that, you know, these folks talk very highly of their first shows and they reminisce and they, they just, that's, that's their, um, that's where they feel so emotional around the idea that, you know, I went through this door and found all my friends, saw these amazing bands. It's all, it's all part of therapy. And that's where the whole idea of scream therapy comes from. That's awesome. That's, I think that's a really worthwhile mission. I think you're doing good work. Do you want to tell me a little about your uh, history with Fugazi in particular and where things started with you and the band that we both love? Oh, for sure. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> uh, interesting because I live on the west coast of Canada. 
I live in a small town that's about five hours north of Vancouver. I went to Vancouver for college when I was fresh out of high school. Um, very hard to find music. You know, I grew up here. In, I'm actually back in my hometown now as an adult, which is pretty rad. Uh, but there's no real scene here. Um, back when I was a youth in high school, there was not a scene at all. There was not even any shows. You could barely find music. I was finding some stuff through mail order. Uh, we had a really crappy corporate record store in the mall called the Big K Music. I don't know if that name rings any bells for anybody, but it was weird. Um, and I was ordering stuff from skate shops and, and stuff like that. And I go to town once in a while and grab some stuff. So, you know, Fugazi and even Minor Threat would have really been a fluke in some ways for me to find or come across because I was just looking for things in this bad record store that looked like they were metal or punk. So if it had some sort of scary image on the front, I would grab it. And I came home with a King Crimson album one time and I was super disappointed. <laughs> it's like, this is supposed to be thrash metal. What the heck? Uh, yeah. So when I moved to Vancouver, then it was a question of, you know, finding that scene and, and all of a sudden being exposed to so many more bands. And I actually discovered a Fugazi before Minor Thread, which I think is, um, for, you know, fairly common on your show, maybe to do with age or whatever. Um, I'm 48, so you know I wouldn't have been very old when Minor Threat was was doing their thing. So I remember very distinctly I was doing a radio show in Vancouver at a at a university there in a place called Burnaby, and I was uh, I came in early one time, and these two guys were doing a show before me, and it's called Blueprint. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. What kind of music do these guys play? Blueprint doesn't sound like a very punk rock name. Uh, mine was called Club Grotesque, <laughs> so, which is a very punk name. And, you know, these guys, Kim and Ryan, who I ended up, you know, very, becoming friends with, were playing music like Fugazi. They're playing Jawbreaker, Gorilla Biscuits, uh, bands like that. And they put Blueprint on for me because I was kind of inquiring about the name. And I was just blown away. This music sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. Um, you know, I think maybe Bad Religion was the one band when I was younger that I kind of placed more in the melodic ca category. Uh, whereas, whereas Fugazi were just a whole another level. And so that was how I first heard them. Um, these guys were in a band called Spark Marker in Vancouver, and they're actually quite influenced by Fugazi as well. So um, they were kind of my, my gateway to that. And uh, so I went and bought Repeater, because you got to after that, right? Got to. And that was the first Fugazi record that I bought. And went back and got the older ones. Uh, sorry, the older one, 13 songs, and then <clears throat> a bunch of other Discord stuff, just because I knew that if I liked them, maybe I liked the other bands. That's how I grew up, was everything on a thrash metal label, I'd buy the rest of it. Uh, so I bought Rites of Spring and Grey Matter, and I think the, the first Jawbox record. And then I bought Steady Die of Nothing and Kill Taker when they, when they came out, um, after I was there for a couple of years. So yeah, I mean, definitely over the years, total listening spiral right i mean just go into this thing where you know, listen to all the albums in order and then go back and listen to them not in order and that just became a kind of my my thing for for through my early 20s did you ever get the chance to see them live i did i saw them twice uh the shows in in vancouver were pretty volatile um there was a show in 1991 after i'd been there uh, for a year. It was during the summer. And unfortunately, I was back here in Powell River for the summer because I was here. I do I did commercial fishing when I was a kid. So I missed the show. But this was one of the most notorious shows um, of their career as far as I've heard, like on the on the live broadcast. And then when they came back, sorry, the live series. And then when they came back later on, they actually talked about it as well. There was, uh, you know, the interludes, which I love listening to yeah. in all the live series. So there were seven interludes. Uh, just unruly crowds, just a lot of boneheads there. Um, so that was interesting that they played, uh, you know, in Vancouver for that show. So coming back, I actually saw them in May on May seventh, nineteen ninety three. It was around Killtaker, and uh, it was in Vancouver proper, at a place called the Plaza of Nations, which is part of Expo eighty six. It's one of these like world fair things uh -huh. uh, that happened, and so they built this this structure for Expo '86. They started doing shows through the '90s in it, and you know, unfortunately, my ex wasn't really super stoked on being right up front for shows, and I was, but in this case, we decided to, to hold back and and kind of stand on the hill, up on this field and watch. And um, 
you know, amazing show because of the first time I saw them and the sound was bad because I was so far back, but I could still, you know, it was like coming in my brain as if it was just perfect on the album, right? Uh, but yeah, they were just watching them on stage, just seeing them on stage and how they how they carried themselves was, was pretty awesome. Um, another show that had a lot of, a lot of trouble. Um, I don't know what it is about Vancouver, but we're actually a pretty, pretty nice people up here. I don't know if it was just, yeah, that's my understanding. I know. Um, you might've heard it before, but this is the one where Ian singles out this guy who came up on the stage and stage dived and he calls him quote, you little courageousless motherfucker (laughs) end quote. And then this is my favorite thing of all the, the, the Fugazi crowd interactions, maybe other than the ice cream cone thing that Guy did, which is the most, sort of the most famous one. But uh, Ian says, quote, the next motherfucker who comes up on the stage and kicks people in the head, I will seriously come out there myself and I will beat you to the fucking ground, end quote. <laughs> which was this, uh, what, when was this? This is the Plaza of Nations, Vancouver, May 7th, 1993. Oh, that was the 93 show. Got it. Yeah, and the 91 show was very, like, volatile, and they talked about it at 93, said, you know, last time we came here, it was one of the most awful shows we ever played as far as crowds go, and please be respectful, that kind of a setup. But, uh, yeah, when he said the, the I'll beat you to the ground thing, it was, I remember just feeling like that was the best thing ever. You know, I knew that um, at that point that he was, you know, somewhat of a pacifist, uh, you know, in that stage of his life. But, I mean, it definitely shut people up. You know, that was that was a great moment. I'm looking at the track listing on the Live Series website right now. Looking at those seven interludes, I'm thinking I've got to download this. And <laughs> You should. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and they didn't play Sweet and Low, unfortunately, at that show. Um, I think it was 19 songs. Yeah, they played 19 songs. Uh, then I saw them again, uh, End of Days, 2001. I guess the last tour. And... You know, it was a bit of a weird show. They they played at a curling curling rink, ice skating rink, and they played for a really long time. In my memory, it was three and a half hours. I <laughs> I looked and it was just over two. But of course, you know, memory memory creates different different narratives. Um, so thirty three songs, which is pretty wow. awesome. Yeah, and this is yeah. the Burnaby, right? Burnaby. This is no. This is in Victoria, BC, in July oh. of two thousand and one. Uh, and they played three encores. Huh. Uh, the funniest thing I remember, and again, memory memory is you know in the eye of the beholder here. But there was a bunch of people that were staying in beh- behind for the third encore, and people were slowly filtering out because they're playing for so long. Right. And my friend Lisa and I talked about this recently, but she said, "Yeah, did you remember there was only like a few of us at the end?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. There's probably only like maybe a hundred people, like max, at the end <laughs> near the end of the show." <laughs> So I think people were just like leaving because they're like, well, how long are these guys going to play, right? Fugazi testing people's patience for once. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, that actually brings me to the next thing. We'll get there in a sec, actually. Um, So uh, they've never been to Victoria before. Victoria's on Vancouver Island, so it's cut off from the rest of the mainland. And they said that they probably wouldn't be back. You know, this sort of alluded to the fact that, you know, I always wondered, did they know if they were going to be uh, on hiatus after that tour. Yeah. Um, but after the second encore, Guy said, uh, quote, it took us so long to get here. We're more than, ha- we're more than happy to play some more. Um, and then, like I said, a bunch of us filtered out. I Obviously, I stayed. This is, um, you know, I hadn't seen Fugazi in almost 10 years. So I was like, I'm not going anywhere. Um, and they played Sweet and Low Last, which I know they do at a lot of shows, which yeah. is pretty cool. Um, and then Ian at the very end said, thanks for your patience. So <laughs> testing the patience. Thanks for your patience. Um, oh, and those are my shows. I, mean, I want to get your thought on, like, what do you think about the last two? Did they know? Like, it seemed like, the, especially at this show, that they were kind of like, you know, we're not going to be back for a long time kind of a thing. And My understanding is they didn't know. Um, they certainly, okay. I mean, I know for a fact that they didn't know the last show would be the last show. Um, okay. And yeah, I mean, they, they didn't play their last show until almost a year later, right? Almost a year after this. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they were just figuring that logistically it's difficult to do Victoria. Yeah. They hadn't been there since they'd never been there until 2001. So I guess it was just, yeah, that sort of, will it, will the planets align ever again? Yeah. Sort of deal. Right. My friend, uh, Malcolm put on the show and he did such a good job. And I think that they were you know, really pleased, but at the same time, 
you know, like you're not going to come back to such a place just because the the show went smoothly if this logistically not going to work. Right. You know. Yeah. I, I know they hit a lot of small cities and towns in in uh, America and other places that were like on a road, <laughs> you know, and like connected to other pieces of the land, but uh, tough when it's an island, I guess. Yeah, right. If it's on the way yeah. to somewhere, like there's more of a more of an excuse to play a, a small, maybe out of the way place. Yeah, yeah, and expensive um, to come here too. Hmm. You're adding on probably another few hundred bucks just to come onto the ferry and all that stuff. Well, I'm glad you got to see them play this song, Sweet and Low. I definitely, at least one of the shows that I saw, they closed with this. And uh, I guess that's a good point I wish to leap into talking about Sweet and Low and something that I've covered in the podcast uh, before in earlier episodes was that, uh, yeah, Sweet and Low is the most played closer, set closer that they ever did. Yeah. Um, kind of by a narrow margin, Reprovisional is in second place. Okay. But um, yeah, Ian emailed me a long time ago and I was you know first starting this podcast and I asked, was looking at the data, asking him some stuff and he said, uh, Sweet and Low was an excellent way to close out a bruising set. And uh, also, he has addressed this in the 33 and a third book. Have you read that book by a friend? I sure have, yeah. Friend of the show, Joe Gross? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, yeah, you probably went back and, and read this, but uh, in that book he said, it became one of our favorite things to play live, and it's a really good closer. You play a set of loud stuff, and to end it with this lullaby was like giving a little bow. Yeah, I remember that line, yeah. for sure. And that that's definitely a visual that makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah. I know they played it, you know, if it wasn't played last, it was usually played, you know, before an encore or second to last and, you know, a lot of times it was used as a build up to some of the more intense songs like Glue Man or Repeater or Rend It. Um, you know, it definitely, and, and, you know, we'll get to the album too, but it's, it's this little nice piece that kind of changes the mood of the room, you know, uh, could be used in all different kinds of ways, almost like a utility of some sort that the band can, can uh, sort of meld to whatever they need at that given time and shows. Yeah, totally. And no, I think that definitely relates to how it's used on the album too because it comes right after the sort of feedback chaos of 23 beats off uh, yeah. and uh, it, it's a great exercise in contrasts it's it really brings you to a different place i guess on the uh i guess on vinyl it's the side a ends with 23 beats off and side b starts with sweet and low so yeah, yeah a, for sure a little different there but yeah yeah. Well, I think it's kind of the same idea, though, because you have this huge feedback, call it a skronk noise, you know, um, <laughs> freak out. And then, you know, you, you want to flip the record because that's what you do. You listen to side B, but you don't want something else like that that's going to blow your head off. You want something that's going to lead you in. And if it was Casavetas that was the first song inside too, it would just be, I think, too much. You know, I think this little bit in between, I mean, I hate to call it a little bit, it's it's his own song, but... Um, to me, it's it's a little segue that can kind of bridge those two gaps, and they did it in the live shows too. So yeah, um, you got to wonder if that sequencing was was very you know very uh, done in a really uh, pointed way. You know whether that was like you know like okay, well this has got to be here, otherwise we're we're giving people too much. Hmm. Yeah, um, something else I found out I was I was trying to do a little background research on the song and, and the title in particular. You know, I'm sure the first thing that comes to mind for most people with the name Sweet and Low is the, you know, the food product, uh, which is uh, a brand of artificial sweetener made primarily from granulated saccharin, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> it's a it's a sugar substitute. Um, I, I had emailed you, uh, for listeners, I, I emailed Jason this week, and I was like, you know what I'm thinking about? Uh, I think I might do an, like a, an on-air taste test, a real first for the podcast. I'll get a packet of sugar and a packet of sweet and low and uh, and, and try them back to back. Let listeners hear my reactions. But uh, that, that fell through. I couldn't find a packet of sweet and low. I didn't try hard. I just <laughs> I just went by the Starbucks. They had equal and they had something else. Yeah. My wife said, you should you just get one of the other ones and pretend it's sweet and low. And I was like, I'm a journalist, damn it. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because today I was picturing, I wasn't sure if you had 
you pull through on those or not, but I was picturing you <laughs> like I was talking to my wife about, oh, is he going to open up the packet and just dump it down his throat? And she's like, no, no, just put your <laughs> finger on it. And t- yeah. You lick the pad of your index finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, well, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll find other ways to entertain the audience. Well, yeah. So furthermore, <laughs> uh, if, if you read Wikipedia a little ways down, you'll find that the name Sweet and Low derives from an 1863 song by Sir Joseph Barnby, which in turn took both its title and lyrics from an Alfred Lord Tennyson poem entitled The Princess, colon, Sweet and Low. Uh, The lyrics of which I will recite to the listener now. Sweet and low, sweet and low, wind of the western sea. Low, low, breathe and blow, wind of the western sea. Over the rolling waters go, come from the dying moon and blow. Blow him again to me, while my pretty one, while my pretty one sleeps. Sleep and rest, sleep and rest, father will come to thee soon. Rest, rest on mother's breast, father will come to thee soon. Father will come to his babe in the nest, silver sails all out of the west, under the silver moon. Sleep, my little one, sleep, my pretty one, sleep. Well, that's super interesting, Ian, because you think about the fact that this is a this is a little lullaby uh, piece of music, and I almost pictured those lyrics going with this piece of music. Right, they're not the whole, not all of them, but yeah, know. it sounds it yeah. sounds the the song by Barnby sounds nothing like uh, the Fugazi instrumental, of course, but you can totally yeah. picture the lyrics sort of going with that, and uh, yeah. I yeah, I wonder if they were aware of that poem when when they titled this, or if it was just sort of a clever, you know, because it sounds sweet and it's sort of a down tempo number, so sweet and low, yeah, yeah, more and more literal for sure. Do you know if uh, those guys are uh, Tennyson fans, have they ever made any other references to Tennyson in their songs? Not that I have encountered during the course of this podcast, no. Okay. Another thing about this instrumental and the idea of you know pairing lyrics with it is that I was reading um, somewhere that Joe, who's only you know sang on a couple three songs, I think during their during their run. Um, had written this song is one of the very few songs that he wrote, or at least was instrumental in the beginning or initiated it. Indeed. And so I almost picture him singing on this and quieter sort of words or or gentler sort of words because it is a a pretty uh, gentle piece of music. So it kind of goes with that, with those lyrics as well in some ways. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And to elaborate on that uh, again from the 33 and a third book, Uh, According to that book, it was originally slated to be Joe's vocal debut, but they ended up keeping it instrumental. And uh, Joe basically says in the book that, yeah, it's based on something he wrote, and he sort of wrote the core of the entire thing. And he says, quote, it doesn't always work that way, that I was able to do the verse and the chorus, and everyone went with it, end quote. So yeah, we've, we've discussed on the podcast before about how very often... Somebody would bring an I- an idea, and the band would just tear it apart and rebuild it. And uh, you had to sort of put your ego aside because you were going to bring something in, and it wasn't going to like just be accepted by the band whole cloth. But I, I yeah. guess in this case, it's kind of an exception. They just everyone sort of added their parts to it, but kept it more or less the same. Yeah, and didn't he say that they have a tendency to write a song to death, like you said? But in this case, they they decided to leave it alone and that he found that was really refreshing because, Oh, wait a second. We can just kind of (laughs) take a breath here, (laughs) which is what the, what the song is really. It's a, it's a nice relaxing breath uh, before even more intensity. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that that is all I had by way of introducing the song and and talking about the title and and the stuff behind it and whatever. But uh, Mm -hmm. is there anything in particular you'd like to say about the music on this one? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure a lot of guests say this. In fact, I've heard a lot of your guests say this. I'm not a music guy. I do play music, uh, but I treat my guitar more like a percussion instrument. So I'm not aware of how the notes work and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, But I do like the fact that this is such a restrained song and how it starts out with these quiet single notes and then there's, you know, there's a different note on the break and it's got a very um, rolling feel to it, you know. Uh, and then there's also the idea of this kind of distortion that builds up um, and then it, like a tease, it pulls back and it gets quite quiet again. Yeah. 
and I really like that. Um, you mm. know, obviously Brandon's always great on on the drums. He's got that hi hat part in in the. Sort of, there's a role every time that they switch, which he again he pulls that back. It's so much restraint on the song by all of them. Oh, for sure. And there's that tease of it. You know, is it going to get into one of Fugazi's more anthemic, um, intense songs, or is it going to stay how it is? And and of course, it, it kind of gives you that back and forth. Um, I like the fact that uh, you know Ian's doing these single notes with I think it's a palm mute maybe, and then you've got uh, Guy doing more of the solo. Well, you can't really call it a solo, but more of the, the you know, random flashy notes. So that's kind of a good, good little uh, dichotomy there as well. Yeah, technique-wise, um, yeah. I was watching a couple of videos of them playing this, and yeah. it looks like for that main part, I think uh, Ian is hybrid picking, or maybe okay. maybe just finger picking with like a thumb and an index finger. But yeah, so hybrid picking for the listeners you have a pick between your thumb and index finger but you're also plucking another string with a middle finger ring finger pinky whatever um so that's and you can see him sort of like more bringing his hand up and down uh to the guitar rather than like in a strumming motion so that's what's happening there joe lally is using his thumb to play uh rather than the pick that he would use in a more in, in a louder song and Guy is either playing a little melody, as you said, or he's sort of like doing the same uh, thing as Ian, but he's just upstroking with the pick and kind of like a kind of a ska style. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to make me go downstairs after this and do a bunch of practicing on the guitar <laughs> with all these new techniques. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the one part that really gets me, you know, that shivery feeling uh, you get when, when a song really, really nails it for you is when Ian does the harmonics down the neck. I just that part is amazing. That's it the part is. that really, you know, kind of again it, it rolls the song and it gives you that that is this going to get really intense here, and then it pulls back again. So yeah, that part's probably my favorite part about the song is just that, you know, the <laughs> down the neck. It's like a little, like a, I don't know, brings to mind ocean waves or something. You know, in mm-hmm. and out, in and out a little bit, but not in a completely predictable way. Sometimes you get. Uh, a very gentle wave sometimes it you know comes up the shore a little bit more it goes a little bit harder yeah. but you never quite know which one is going to come next so and there's always that one that is you know the waiting for the big wave you yeah know, and then it comes and you're thinking oh my it's just going to be big waves now but then it goes back to some smaller waves super unpredictable i think that's what this song is it's a very constrained mellow seemingly one-dimensional kind of instrumental but then it's got so much variation to it when you really i mean you know i've been listening to this thing now to for like three or four days trying to like really prepare and um i even put it on on a repeat you know repeat the one song and that was kind of fun it's like a you know 20 minute version of sweet and low (laughs) uh but yeah no i think i think there's a lot going on here that maybe i didn't give it credit for well, yeah, I agree. I actually did some musical analysis of this one, which I don't often do on this podcast. Um, so if, if I if I dare step foot into sort of theoretical waters here, and I'll admit right up front, I don't have the most sophisticated musical knowledge. So if I'm wrong, uh, listeners feel free to let me know, email me or whatever. And hey, if, if you think, if you know a lot about music theory and you think I'm right, let me know that too and uh, give me a pat on the <laughs> back. So I was interested to do this because what struck me was there are some contradictions here that are kind of fascinating. It sounds really pretty, but it also really lacks resolution to me. It never lands on like the the tonic chord, like the one in a really strong way. Yeah, and um, so that's int- usually I associate a pretty melody with something that has that kind of resolution that resolves into like a a, a solid feeling key. Um, and also, of course, it's down tempo, but it has that upbeat kind of feel with those like upstroke guitar parts. So yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a tune that plays around with a couple of different things. So um, yeah, as, as far as the lacking resolution thing. I think, you know, going by the bass line, if you, you're just sort of playing along at home, clearly the tonic is, a, the the one note is a D. You know, the, it, the song wants to land on a D, 
But the bass line only briefly touches on that note. It's uh, when it starts out, dun, 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 that, that third note is the D. But, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not at the beginning, it's not at the end, it's sort of stuck in the middle and then it clearly moves on from that. And it, it's just sort of a, a sort of glossed over note that's right in the middle there, uh, the note that, you, that it wants to resolve to. And um, so, you know, initially I was going and, and thinking that this tune was in D minor. And there's some weird things, like while the bass line is, is happening, it seems like Ian is playing a, an A minor, which is, you know, that he's not just playing the, the chord of, of the key that it's in. Um, it's, a, it's a minor five chord. So that's, that adds to the feeling of, of like not having resolution, like waiting to go to the D. But then I had second thoughts. I don't know if it actually is in D minor because the thing is that the, the quote-unquote chorus, I guess, lands on this uh, G major. It's, it's a major four chord, and you don't have a major four in a minor key. So that might indicate that it is in D Dorian rather than D minor. So, yeah, that's my little analysis and uh, music <laughs> nerds, yeah, get in touch and let me know if uh, if you think I'm on the right track. Well, you lost me at the very beginning, but I <laughs> but I do have something, and I don't know if you heard of this. It's a, it's a website called TuneBat. No, I haven't heard um, of that. So it's a key and BPM data finder, whichever whatever that means. Um, so they say the key is A minor. Uh, whether you can you know hmm. believe that or verify it, I don't know. Uh, BPM 104. Then they go into these weird categories just for for fun. So energy 26, danceability 79. <laughs> out of out happiness, of 100, I guess. I guess so. Happiness 37, acousticness 36, instrumentalness 43. So take take that for what it is, but <laughs> yeah. But it does say A minor for the key. Interesting. Well, yeah. I'm going to need an expert to get in touch with me now and, and let me know who's right, me or the website. This is a real John Henry story. It's you versus Tomb Bat. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this song was one that they, like I know they have a lot of experimentation on and hits, uh, the argument, and definitely, well, the instrument soundtrack is a lot of demos and, and more experimentation. So I almost wonder if they had just recorded a few things kind of, you know, to see if they wanted to use them. Maybe, you know, Joe would would have added his vocals to this, maybe not, kind of set it aside. And then when they had that, the end of 23 Beats Off, um, and then going into Casavetas, especially on a CD or a a tape, well, not a tape, on a CD, maybe that was something they just put in there to kind of bridge that gap. That's a good thought, yeah. You know, it doesn't really feel like it would belong anywhere else. And I know these guys take a lot of time with sequencing and, uh, figuring out where things are going to fit. But uh, yeah, I don't know that this would really go anywhere else on the album. I mean, you've got Last Chance for a Slow Dance as the last song, so that's already quite a mellow song. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can imagine <laughs> like they're sequencing this. They can't find any other song order that works without Sweet and Low other than this. And they're like, yeah, 23 beats off into Cassavetes. Too much, too much. You got to step <laughs> on the brake pedal for a minute. Let's not scare anybody off. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I like that. Uh, oh, sorry. Another thing about Toonbat, and like, let's not belabor Toonbat, but they have this really goofy thing where they say, the following songs will sound good when mixed with sweet and low. So we've got Pavement, Father to a Sister of Thought, huh. Can, She Brings the Rain, Galaxy 500, Ceremony, Husker Du, Don't Want to don't Know If You're Lonely, and Stooges, I Want to Be Your Dog, which I'm sure comes up on every, every one that they do. Yeah, very strange website. It's, uh, I don't even know if it's worth looking at, but it, I, I kind of went down a bit of a deep hole with this thing. I'm, I'm going to definitely look at it. At first blush, it's like, how can you quantify these things with, uh, with algorithms? <laughs> like, this isn't possible. It, yeah. uh, but, you know, who knows? They've got computers uh, crushing chess grandmasters these days, so... Did you watch any live versions of this on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, I did. And <clears throat> the one that really struck me was uh, a clip from... Actually, this was on the live series. It wasn't a, a YouTube clip, but I'll mention it. I have a live series from Olympia, October 29th, 1995. And it's interesting because they use 
uh, sleet and low as a buildup to to a noise section and then into glue man, but it's almost six minutes long, which hmm. that's basically double the the amount of time. Um, so there are a lot of ones they do where it sweet and low becomes this this really building chaotic noisy thing, which I find interesting because of how subdued it is on the record. Yeah, um, but yeah, I did I did watch some stuff. I watched the it was the famous Supreme Court show, right? Outdoor show. Or the the banner that says "Turn off your TV," which makes no sense, <laughs> I guess. But um, and I wondered maybe if that was the first time they played it. You can probably search that one up. But it, to me, it seemed like it was very early days for that yeah. song, um, and a year before "In on the Kill Taker" came out. Um, there's some stuff in instrument actually w- with Sweet and Low. It's in New Orleans, yeah, 96. there is. And it's funny because it's the one clip I remember where Guy has this giant blue balloon that he's <laughs> carrying through on this walk. They're going through a walk in the park, and he's got this kid's balloon. Who knows why, but awesome. Just uh, just because you, you mentioned that, I looked it up. It looks like the first performance of Sweet and Low is 1992 in Newcastle, England. Just for curiosity's sake, the last one, uh, Halloween. There we go. <laughs> we're we're <laughs> recording this uh, for listeners the day before Halloween, so yeah, another one of this podcast's spooky coincidences. But yeah, Halloween two thousand two in Leeds. Uh, I guess that's very shortly before they they play their final show. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. What a what a Halloween song, hey, sweet and low. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very scary. <laughs> there, it, there's a picture of them uh, wearing masks at that gig. That's that's pretty funny. I wonder how long they kept that up. <laughs> <laughs> I saw some footage in uh, a show from Nashville, uh, 1993, and on the last song, they're, they're playing it as the last song, and there's people crowd surfing. <laughs> Why would you crowd surf to I, that song? I, I think I watched the same video, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But something yeah. that I liked watching those live videos is, you know, it becomes clear that it's this is a song that they would do some improvisation with, and it's it's a nice counterpoint to the shows where they would do, or the songs rather, where they would do crazy loud improvisations and feedback going all over the place. Like they could be just as inventive and go to like weird little places uh, while maintaining just a, sort of a quiet, quiet peaceful tone and uh, keeping the volume and tempo relatively the same. Yeah, like that one on. Uh, the live series Olympia '95. Just this is a whole other thing. Yeah, it's, it's a beast, right? It it has the quiet beginning and it just builds up, almost like the build in, you know, shut the door. You know, the, some of the shut the door recordings where it just builds and builds and weird because you know it, it is on the album after 23 Beats Off, which is one of those real noise freakouts. But then live sometimes they'll 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 make that one i guess that's something that they do a lot though with different songs you know extending them and making them more and more intense as it goes but weird to hear that one weird to hear that one do it though the most interesting live performance that i think i found and i believe this was first brought to my attention by phil carney uh, but others have mentioned it is um a show from Firenze, that's Florence for English-speaking people in Italy, in 1995. So um, they they start playing this, and then it's really fascinating. The audience just, and, and you know, it's the beginning of it. It's just Ian playing his his little rhythmic chords, and the audience starts singing a song to it. And what they're singing is Bella Ciao. And what that is, is uh, I, I went to Wikipedia for this. So Bella Ciao is an Italian protest folk song from the late 19th century, originally sung by the Mondino workers in protest to the harsh working conditions in the paddy fields of northern Italy. The song was modified and adopted as an anthem of the anti-fascist resistance by the Italian partisans between 1943 and 1945 during the Italian resistance against the Nazi German forces occupying Italy and... During the Italian Civil War, the Italian partisans struggle against the fascist Italian Social Republic and its Nazi German allies. Versions of Bella Ciao continue to be sung worldwide as an anti-fascist hymn of freedom and resistance. So, it's a fascinating listen. I've I've got to encourage listeners to check this out, download the show from the live series if you can. I'll put it a uh, link in the show notes. Um, it's and and the band just sort of like 
waits for them to to finish and like go through the whole thing before Joe sort of comes in with the bass line and they go on to play the song. And uh, afterwards, they finish the song and it's the last song of the set. And Ian says, like before they leave, is like, "Thank you for the most beautiful part of the night." Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 really cool. I'm really curious now what song they played before that because maybe there was some sort of connection with with the lyrics or to make them start to sing that during I was you know, just that was a pretty well I was just listening I think it was promises right before that okay but um interestingly there's a photo on the live series website and they're playing in front of a like a banner a big banner in the background mm-hmm. It says in Italian, uh, the English translation is today, like yesterday, against fascism with every means necessary. So, okay, yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, thematically appropriate there, I guess. Totally, that's interesting. I'm glad you found that one. Yeah, it's a it's a great yeah. listen. Um, that's that's one that I reckon the the band probably remembers pretty clearly and fondly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, there's certain ones that you can tell they remember because they'll reference. Uh, I mean, obviously, very good memories to begin with, but they'll come back 10 years later and say, oh, yeah, last time we were here, we played this place or we went to this restaurant or it's just I don't think I keep all that stuff straight myself. Yeah, they Ian, at least, seems to have a remarkable memory for all these hundreds and hundreds of shows. You probably mentioned the uh, one of those uh, Vancouver shows to him and I'm sure he would be like, oh, yeah, that was the crowd was terrible. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Did you get into the Ugazi song Sweet Release? I totally forgot to go back to that for this podcast. Okay. So no. that's that's Sweet and Low mixed with Release Your Delph by Method Man. Uh-huh. And it's really it's really cool. It's interesting though because it actually switches near the end of the track to Blueprint during the real like you know, the real like pounding at home part of the song. Yeah. Um but I, I mean I lo- I love that Ugazi record. I can't I, I'm not even a huge uh Wu-Tang fan, really. I mean, I could take it or leave it, but I love the mashup there with the, <clears throat> with the rap and, and Fugazi. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm a fan. Yeah. It's a good little record. You have anything else to say about Sweet and Low? I feel like I'm almost ready to evaluate this one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much more we can say about it. It's, it's hilarious because when I first started looking at this to uh, to come on, I thought to myself, how the heck are we going to do this? I mean, <laughs> what is what are we going to do with this? But there's actually, like I said before, there's a whole lot going on. And um, the fact that it that I, you know, I really believe it's a it's a nice piece to, to bridge those two gaps with 23 Beats Off and Casavetas. And as soon as I started thinking about it in those contexts, I, it really changed my perception of the song. Hmm. I think before it was just this thing that I didn't really, it, it was almost like a background music thing, you know? And then when I started really looking at it, it's, it's makes, it makes a lot of sense where they put it. Um, and also how understated it is. I think it's a lot better song than I gave it credit for. Well, that brings us right to ratings. So, yeah, let me know from a scale of one to five stars. Do you think you could assign a a rating to sweet and low? I sure can. I mean, I wrote it down here. I'm not sure if I want to change it after our conversation. But I think it's probably a 2.75, uh-huh. maybe a three. But I think in the context of it being that segue we talked about, I think it's a solid three and a half. It really, it really does its thing. It's got its purpose. It's It's a real... Um, it's it's way more interesting. It's it's got a lot going on with it, and I think, you know, it deserves to be really paid attention to. Yeah, and that's that's uh, maybe something that wasn't always done, especially on the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three and a half. Yeah, you know, something that just occurred to me. You say it, you know, it has its purpose, and Roger Ebert when he would give you know star ratings to movies, I think something he said was like he he does it in the context of like what the movie is going for. Like, does it succeed at its goal? You know, you don't want to compare a slasher film to Citizen Kane. It's, it's not trying to do the same thing. So with that mentality, like what this song is trying to do and um, how beautifully it does it, I think I'm going uh, 4.25, four and a quarter. Um, Wow. (laughs) That's that's how I'm feeling today. Yeah. Taking the Ebert way of doing things. That's, that's a good point. (laughs) 
Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, people say, oh, well, I don't like that movie because it was not my taste or whatever. That's not the point. I yeah. mean, is the movie a good piece of art or not? You know, um, you're not going to shrug off The Shining because you don't like scary movies. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. There's There were a lot of comments on this one on the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page. Let me run through a few of those. Our old friend Vishkana says, one of my favorite songs, a truly beautiful and moving instrumental. I love it so much. Thomas Harding says, it took me a long time to come around on Sweet and Low. It works wonderfully in a live setting and on the LP where it starts side two, but completely sucks the life out of things on the CD. Wow. (laughs) I I think (laughs) both of us disagree with that, but uh, yeah, fair enough. Bradford Goodwin says, the Here Comes the Bride of Fugazi instrumentals, and not just because it's a sonic marriage of ska strokes and walking bass lines. This is music for putting one foot in front of the other, eyes fixed on the horizon. By the end, you've got rice marks on your face from all the punk rock weddings this song has inevitably been played at over the years. <laughs> Damn it, awesome. I, I did not think of using this for my wedding. That, that's a good idea. James Vitito says... I've always loved how the song flows. It's not a lullaby, but it has a soothing feel. A stealth song the band would use on rowdy crowds. It was my favorite Fugazi instrumental until number five came along to replace it. Sean Urban says, The only Fugazi song I've heard over the Office playlist. Productivity went up 100% that day. (laughs) For Rob Reginio, he says, Could be my favorite Fugazi instrumental. The way it just spawns out of 23 beats off feedback is just beautiful. For years, I've had a little game I play with this one. Whenever I'm in the car with a non-Fugazi fan, friend or family member, I put this song on and wait for the inevitable, what is this? This is nice. Gets them every time. Tom Goebel says, I've always felt that Brandon is the unsung hero of this song. As a drummer myself, I know I'd really struggle to compose a drum part for a song that has something of a quiet, loud dynamic, but maintains its mellowness and beauty throughout. Brendan's performance on this track manages to add delicacy, power, and momentum without sounding at all out of place. Conan Neutron says, got to see them play this the second night of a two-night run with Shellac and the X in Chicago. Almost every other song in the set was just pure fire and catharsis, and the amazing restraint and ease that came from Sweet and Low's placement became a masterclass for me in how to put together a set. That show was a big deal for me for a number of reasons, but that specific moment and song is a major highlight. Ben Traub says, this song helped me on a tour, was traveling in Europe on tour, sharing some shows with Off Minor. I was missing home one night, and kablamo, Steve and Kevin busted into this as an interstitial for Jamie to tune up. They'd get about to the second chorus and get really loud, then transition into one of their songs. It was one of the very few times a Fugazi cover was okay. And uh, finally, Mike Farr says, I remember quite a few shows where Ian played the opening chord for what seemed like forever before the band came in. I always loved that. So thank you for contributing your thoughts, everybody. Pretty well-liked song from the the sound of it. Maybe all the people who hate Sweet and Low are just afraid to say. but uh, (laughs) It's pretty hard not to like, really. It's it's pretty beauty, right? That brings us to uh, really the last thing I have to ask of you, Jason Shores. Do you have any plugs? Never mind, what's the Can listeners get in contact with you? What's the best place for them to listen to your podcast, etc.? And I'm wondering also if you have a particular episode that you might suggest as you know for somebody to jump into it. Yeah, uh, the podcast is Scream Therapy, and it can be found on all the podcast services platforms and the website is scream therapy hq as in headquarters.com so scream therapy hq.com and that's a good uh, place to go for all the episodes if you want to look at the the whole roster um yeah as far as a recommendation i mean they're also individual a lot of the folks on there do talk about very much about their own personal stories with mental health I really like the most recent one I did with uh, Bella Vanek from a band called Fox Bodies. Um, it was really good. Uh, she talks about uh, bipolar, living with bipolar and trauma. Uh, maybe one other one would be, I really like the episode with Jason Hamaker, who's a drummer that lives in DC and he's been in Frodis, Decahedron with Joel Alley on bass. And he's currently drumming in a band called Zealot R.I.P., he talks about channeling his attention deficit hyperactivity into his creative projects, like music and photography. And that's a, that's a really good one. Wow. Uh, so I would recommend those two. 
And yeah, if you're interested in checking out uh, the book, um, the, I'm writing a book. It's upcoming, probably be out in the next couple of years. It's a long process. You can check that out too, screamtherapyhq.com slash book. Did you say you had a passage you wanted to share from that? I could, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Go um, for it, man. Okay. Fingers bust through cement. Matter over mind. The first words I write after my bipolar diagnosis are about Figazi, the band that, more than any other, has shaped my life. Powell River's historic Patricia Theatre is the scene for my 46th birthday. I'm still reeling from a psychotic break that hinders my ability for thoughts, ideas, and fingertips to flow freely. It's like a head injury, my psychiatrist says. I've gathered my friends here to watch the Fugazi documentary film Instrument, a much-deserved birthday present to myself. I look down at my crumpled I look down at a crumpled piece of paper in my shaking hands. I read Fugazi is a band that plays music for the marginalized, the disenfranchised, and the dis- disillusioned. Fugazi is a band for the people. But Fugazi isn't just a band. Fugazi is love. Fugazi is life. Fugazi is a glimmer of hope and desolate world. Fugazi is an eternal pocket of joy. Fugazi's music is alive and ever-changing. It takes on new forms of brilliance every time I listen. And it's always in my heart and in my head. I'm not particularly satisfied or proud of what I write. To say I'm rusty is a massive understatement. Like a marathon runner's... Like a marathon runner's false start, the next three months are spent frozen in depression, and my words dry up again. They're hot enough to form, never mind write. And Fugazi never leaves my side. Beautiful, man. Well done. I wish you Thanks. I wish you the best of luck on this endeavor. I've never written a book, but my understanding is it's a huge undertaking. And uh, I'm pulling for you, and I think you're doing good work with that and with the podcast. So, vaya con Dios, my friend. Right on. I'll make sure you get a copy. And, and thanks a lot for checking out the podcast, too. Of course. Well, that's great. Listeners, check that out. And of course, as always, you can reach me at fugazi a to z at gmail.com. And you can join the Facebook group I mentioned. Just search the alphabetical Fugazi. Always looking for your opinions. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Target. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my life.